0: You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. Last week, Johnny talked about body, right? Feeling God in our body, feeling the need for God in our body. This week, I was given the small topic of mind We're biting off small chunks here. Um, next week we're doing world, I don't know. Uh, next week is this big mystery to me. Mind, there's a lot to talk about here. I'm gonna try to focus us, I'm gonna give us some material to think about, some things to talk about. I, I, have, I have a lot to say. It's kind of a bummer that I didn't get body because so much of what people are, are working on as far as mind and philosophy of mind right now is deeply connected to body. We're gonna get to some of that. Um, but to start with, yeah, we're, we're talking about feeling the need in our mind. Feeling the need, right? Feeling this hunger, feeling this lack. Um, I really like Jordan's email this week. I don't know if you saw it. Jordan wrote an email about inviting people to centering prayer, and he said, I, I didn't really, in his words, I didn't really like the need to feel it language, right? The way that we've been talking about that. We need to feel this. He said, that felt like a directive or like an order. I didn't like that. I didn't like someone telling me, you need to feel this. But I, I slowly began to realize that this is, no, we, we need to feel this. Right? Like If we don't feel this, if it's just like an intellectual exercise or it's just something we say that we feel but we don't actually feel it, like we're really missing what this season is about and what God's doing. We, we need to feel this. So in preparing for this, I was paying attention to what I was feeling, where I was feeling this lack in my mind. And I'm going to share some stuff that I hope will do that for you. Uh, we're going to start with reading some stuff from uh, an essay that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in 1943. Um, this is 10 Years into the War. Uh, 10 years into the resistance to the Nazis, right? So um, he wrote this essay called After 10 Years. Maybe some of you have read it. It's really not very long. Uh, I have it here, this is it. And this includes like uh, an introduction that's longer than the actual essay. It's worth reading, worth picking up. If you want to borrow it, come let me know. It was expensive though, so don't don't walk off with it, okay? But, uh, if you want to read it, then you can. But he started, he started by saying, um, have there ever been people in history who in their time, like us, had so little ground under their feet? People to whom every possible alternative open to them at the time appeared equally unbearable, senseless, contrary to life. Have there been those who looked, who like us, looked to the source of their strength beyond all those available alternatives? So he's, he's talking after 10 years of resisting Nazis, which, you know, we're still doing, we're still in this. Um, there's some comparisons here. He's saying the ground has dropped out, right? We, we don't understand where we're standing anymore. Um, things are shifting. I feel that. That, that. that hits me in the heart. Someone was reading this to me, and I, I was like, I'm, I'm using this. This is getting me all kinds of ways. Um, for some of us, maybe it felt like the ground dropped out from our feet in November of 2016. Do you remember that sense? I woke up to it and was like, oh, shit. Um, for other people, it was that night. Maybe for some of us... Um, it's questions of climate justice, right? This slowly growing sense that, like, we are we're, we're not okay, right? We are at sea, so to speak. There's no ground beneath our feet. Um, for some of us, maybe it's around the opioid crisis in this neighborhood, right? Maybe you're like, I don't, I don't know what the bottom of this I don't know how far we're going to go. Um, maybe for some of us, it's just reading the news this week, reading about New Zealand, the things that have been happening there. That feeling of not having ground under the feet, I resonate with that, that feels. Bonhoeffer keeps, keeps writing, he says, the huge masquerade of evil has thrown off all ethical concepts into confusion. That evil should appear in the form of light, good deeds, historical necessity, social justice, is absolutely bewildering. He says, um, this is, he calls this the failure of the reasonable ones. Uh, those who think with the best of intentions and in their naive misreading of reality, with a bit of reason, they can patch up a structure that has come out of joint. So says, reasonable ones have failed. That project is over. That isn't working. But he also calls out the ethical fanatics, sort of on the other end, right? Those who think that with the purity of a single principle, they can lance the poison from the wound. If we just do this one thing, that's enough, right? So people who are looking for balance, people who are looking just for one thing, both, Wheels have come off. This isn't working. Yeah, I feel that. It's like no matter what we aim for, we make the problem worse, and we're not smart enough to wade through the complexity before us. Right? How long have we been talking about climate change? Like I, I was hearing about this 15 years ago, and we're, we're worse now than we were then. Right? There was some glimmer of hope that maybe we'd turn things around. We're not. Right? We're, we're preparing for worst-case scenario now. I feel that. Bonhoeffer in his time saw the same thing, and and in this essay, he goes through a bunch of different topics, but he writes this one section called On Stupidity. Uh, Some translations call it On Foolishness. I'm going to leave the word as stupidity, but we're not talking about unintelligence, right? We're not talking about people who who are not smart. We're not talking about IQ. We're talking about more closer to, like, what it means to be a fool, right? Someone who's making bad decisions, someone who doesn't have wisdom. He writes... uh, Stupidity is a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest against evil. That can be expressed, exposed, and if need be, evil can be prevented by the use of force. Evil always carries within itself the germ of its own subversion, in that it leaves behind at least a sense of unease in human beings. Against stupidity, though, we are defenseless. Neither prevents, neither protests, nor the use of force accomplish anything with stupidity. Reasons fall on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed in such moments the stupid person even becomes critical And when facts are irrefutable, they're just pushed aside as inconsequential as incidental In all this the stupid person in contrast to the malicious one is utterly self-satisfied and being easily irritated becomes dangerous by going on the attack He's writing in 1943 Um, My mama told me not to call people stupid, but have have you been on Twitter lately? (laughs) Like, this sounds like he's describing a lot of what happens on the internet. Um, after I read about New Zealand, I, out of curiosity, and this was very stupid of me, I went on Fox News to see how they were reporting it, um, because I've, I've experienced a lot of Islamophobia coming out of that news source in particular. So I went on, and, and the, the reports themselves were you know, reporting the facts, but the comment boards were disastrous. I mean, they were toxic, and it was Christians. It was specifically Christian comments that were making some of the most ludicrous and aggressively foolish comments at the bottom. I mean, it was sickening. Um, that was a bad decision. I, I, I don't really recommend doing that, but if you want a sense of what the foolishness is that, that we have in common with what is describing, there it is. Um, Bonhoeffer again writes, there it is up there. The fact that the stupid person is often stubborn must not blind us to the fact that he is not independent. In conversation with him, one virtually feels that one is dealing not at all with him as a person, but with slogans catchwords and the like that have, been, that have taken possession of him. He is under a spell, blinded, misused, and abused in his very being. Having thus become a mindless tool, the stupid person will also be capable of any evil and at the same time incapable of seeing that it is evil. This is where the danger of diabolical misuse lurks for it is, there, for it is this that can once and for all destroy human beings. Did you read about the New Zealand stuff? This, is, this really hit me. Um, I, I really feel this. We need help with this stuff, right? I don't, I don't know who's writing answers. I don't know who's got solutions to some of these things. We need help with this. We, we need God in our minds, right? This foolishness, I mean, to quote the dude, will not stand, man. Yeah. <laughs> So Bonhoeffer was pointing this out in 1943. We're still struggling with it. And this is a whole person comprehensive crisis, right? He's not talking about just thoughts that have gone awry. He's talking about a whole body. Let's remember that. But this week we're focusing on mind. Um, There's something about what counts as wisdom, right? How it's taught, how it's distributed, how it's sourced, what it stands on. That's especially problematic for Christians in America right now. Um, This is our our house. This is our, our siblings that are particularly messed up around this. We need help in our minds, and I feel it. Um, I see this in others, of course. That's what I'm pointing to right now. But Bonhoeffer's account of f- foolishness feels familiar to me, too. I mean, I'm on Twitter. Like, I, I know what this feels like. I know what it feels like to be a fool and only have a slogan to respond to someone with, right? To not be able to see beyond my own you know, veil that I put up, beyond dealing with something in my own mind. We need wisdom. But so where do we find it, right? How do we regain that ground beneath our feet? That's the that's question I want to think about today. Um, can we rely on facts? Facts also is a loaded term right now. Again, this is, can we, can we have statistics? Are statistics enough to be trusted? Um, do we need to see to believe? Is that the ground that we'll stand on? Can we trust something without seeing an image of it? Or do we need the image for it to be stood upon, to be trusted? Uh, I really like this thinker, Jacques Ellul. Some of you may have read him. I think a lot of you probably have read him. Um, He was really skeptical of this this attitude towards facts and statistics, images being enough. I tend to agree. Um, He says that all all facts, all statistics, all images, everything that's seemingly obvious on its surface, um, those things already sit inside a web of interpretation. To let facts speak for themselves is basically to abandon ourselves, our minds, uh, to something that doesn't encourage or discernment or wisdom, right? We're, we're snuffing out that light of discernment if we just let facts speak for themselves. There's always already that web of discernment interpretation that we're already into. That's why we need this, this where, does, where does wisdom stand? Uh, but it would be easier, right? It would be a lot easier to just have that one principle, that one heuristic that cuts through everything, cuts through all the bullshit, just one thing we could rely on. Over and over in my life, I've leaned into that impulse. right? Maybe you've done this too, to oversimplify the world so that I can, I can control it. right? I tell myself that I'm, I'm oversimplifying the world so that I can understand it. But really, it's about control. Um, it's wanting to be able to predict what happens right? Or, or know that my actions will be okay, given all the chaos and complexity of the world. Um, and that happens up here. That's not just in the body. That's, that's, that's how I think about the world, how I interpret what I see comes, that comes to me. Um, and that's pretty naive. The world is always more complex than that, right? The world's always more complex than an image. We're thrown back into this problem of wisdom and foolishness. Interpreting the right thing to do at the right time, in the right place, with the right people, for the right reasons, right? All of that. Over and over and over. That's a problem of discernment. It's not just a problem of facts, it's a problem of knowing the right thing to do. It's wisdom. To escape this problem of discernment is just to abandon our minds entirely it's to become the fools that Bonhoeffer describes. Okay, so we're kinda stuck, we need, we need wisdom. So with that in mind, I'm gonna ask that we read the Bible. Um, for some of us, maybe this actually is a crutch, a slogany crutch that we lean back on. I don't want that to be this for you again, right? I'm asking that we look to this maybe with some wisdom that's accrued from a similar situation then and what it says to us now. Um, there's, there's like three passages of 1 Corinthians that I'm gonna use. They're all very closely related. Could someone read this first one? First Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. Someone read it for us, please.
1: who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom, for we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom,
0: and God's weakness is stronger than Thank you. So as we've been discussing, the problem isn't just intelligence, uh, which is most of us, what we think about when we think mind. What what Paul is writing about is wisdom. Uh, He's talking to the church in Corinth. Corinthians is the church in Corinth. Corinth is this really interesting city. I guess you can compare it to Las Vegas. Uh, It's like a crossroads of the world, like very cosmopolitan, a lot of different currents of thought, people of different backgrounds. This was happening in the church as well. Like the church reflected this uh, social setting a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different ethnicities, class backgrounds, ages, everyone in the same church. And they had a lot of problems. I mean, they were, they were a very messy church. Uh, most of what we know from them is, you know, a lot of what's popular is their sexual problems, but they had a lot of other things going on. And Paul really cared about this church. He had, he had been with them for a long time, and he's writing this letter to them, and he's, he's saying, what, on what does wisdom stand, right? Like, what's, what's the ground of wisdom? Like, for Greeks, Right, so there's a, yeah, Greeks desire wisdom. That, that's pointing towards like rhetoric, right? If you've read Plato, or if you've read a lot of these Greek philosophers, what the Greeks are asked for is your, your argument needs to cohere, it needs to follow, right? We, we want your beautiful words and your beautiful ideas. Paul's saying, I don't have that. I'm not bringing that, and that's not what Jesus brings. The other option here is Jews demand signs, right? So like powerful things, right? something that signifies, I say this, and then I do this, and this proves that what I said is true because this is so, so powerful. And he's saying, that's, that's also not necessarily what I'm doing. Like, what we're doing here is, 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 is flipping a lot of the ways that humans demand rationality around. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, 1 through 5. This is a little shorter. Who wants to do this one?
1: When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you, in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God.
0: Woo! Yeah. Okay, so that, that line, fear and trembling, uh, that's, that's got some legs on it. You've heard that before, right? Maybe some of you have read that in philosophy and literature. Um, it's powerful because Paul is describing a sense that comes with this state of mind, that's affective, right? He's, he's, he's afraid. He's trembling because this stuff doesn't really make sense. Some of the things that he's trying to teach about how God works in the spirit, how the spirit is evident in the life of Jesus, don't necessarily make sense rationally. That's really difficult to teach, right? You can get yourself from some problems there. Paul isn't appealing to how beautiful his words sound, but he's uh, appealing to the spirit of God. And he explains that uh, in the next section. This is two slides. Someone want to read these? We're almost done with the scripture, I know. But it's going to make sense.
1: But as it is written, when eye has seen or hear heard or the human heart can
0: see what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human, except the human spirit that is within? So also, no one comprehends what is truly God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit, Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God, and we speak of these things in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Thanks, Greg. One more. Can we have a lady? It's a lot. The mind of Christ. What a weird phrase, right? Like that's not like the brain of Christ. We don't, we don't talk about that when we eat communion, right? We're not saying this is the brain of the Lord that you're consuming. <laughs> Please now have the mind of Christ, right? And it's not a lesson. He's not actually teaching like a set of rubrics or principles, commonly what we try to learn, like a, a specific pattern, a way of assessing, interpreting the information that we receive. It's not what he's doing. What he's pointing to is something, what, revealed by the Spirit. Where is that? That's revealed to us through the Spirit. That's interesting, right? That word revealed has a lot of power in the Bible. There's a lot of conversation about what that means. Apocalypse points to this. Apocalypse means revealing, taking away the veil, showing what's behind, showing what's really going on. There's a difference in the Bible between perceiving, like seeing, like using your eyes, and then actually understanding what you're looking at. Right? This happens a lot with Jesus. Right? So when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with those, those, those two dudes, you know, after he r- rises from the dead, it's really weird because they, they don't know who he is. They're looking at him. They're trying to understand who he is, and they, they, they can't pick it up. And then Jesus reveals himself to them, even though they can see him. Right? That, think about that. They can see him, but they don't know who he is. They don't know what they're seeing. That revealing, that making clear in the mind is something else. That's revealed. Revealed to us through the Spirit. It's this Greek word, hopthe. It's to, to be given understanding. It's when something is unveiled for you. That's what he's talking about here. This isn't a question of just seeing an image or, or understand, hearing the right fact or getting the right system of knowledge. There's something about God revealing how God does things, how the Spirit is acting in us and among us. That's what's happening here. It's this, this wild way of understanding how the mind works. I like it. Paul isn't describing any old kind of rationality. Right? Here he says, what human being knows, what is truly human, except that the human spirit that is within. Right? So the human spirit understands what's human. God's spirit understands what is truly God's. Okay, that's a pretty basic parallel right there. The human spirit can understand human wisdom. God's spirit understands God's wisdom. Does that make sense? This isn't just any kind of paradox goes, all of reason is out the window. There's a specific thing that he's pointing to, um, and it's, it's, it's premised on revelation on God revealing things for us through the Spirit. Bonhoeffer described the same thing uh, in in his letter on stupidity, in his essay on stupidity. He actually says, only an act of liberation, not education, can overcome stupidity. The biblical passage that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom states that the internal liberation of human beings to live the responsible life before God is the only genuine way to overcome stupidity. That's powerful, right? Uh, A lot of stupidity. we have already experienced education. We've tried that. Yes, we need better education systems, of course. But there's something else that God is doing. When we're trying to get at what what God's wisdom is, we need God's spirit that's different. So what then do we do? I'm, I'm almost done. This is really it. This is all I want to talk about. How might God be giving us God's wisdom, the mind of Christ? I propose that this takes place in two places in two sites, attention on the one hand and imagination. They work together really closely. Attention, attention focuses on what's in front of us. Sometimes it's called mindfulness, right? Paying attention to the real, the tangible, the situation we find ourselves in, what's already coming into being. But imagination on the other hand, it orients to the horizon and beyond. It hopes, it pushes us to change and to grow, to become something else. Right? And the two work together. God meets us in both attention and imagination. That's that's where God is, is revealing God the way of, the way of God's wisdom. God transforms us in both imagination and attention. So let, I, I don't have a whole lot to say more beyond this. I just want to think about these two things: intention, because a lot of people, including a lot of people in the Bible, a lot of people I respect, really disrespect attention or sorry imagination. Attention is what's thought to be enough in imagination. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think imagination really matters. Their critique of imagination is that it's all illusions, it's all disembodiment, dangerously detached from the realities of life. And that if you live a life of imagination, pure imagination, uh, you're going you're gonna to go down some, yeah, like that boat ride. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'd say, you know what, there's a, point. There, there's a point to this, right? Imagination really can disembody you from what's around. But then that throws attention, that suggests that attention is this very limited, depressed, constrained version of what attention really can be. And what I, what I guess I'm pointing to is attention that's enlivened, catapulted by prophetic imagination. Right? Putting these two together. Walter Brueggemann wrote a really good book about imagination called The Prophetic Imagination. Uh, I have it here. If you haven't read this, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I hope most of you I think most of you have read this if you have it's worth reminding if you haven't please come borrow it I have like three copies because uh, they keep disappearing uh, it's, it's really good it's pretty short right so you, you can see it's not that long and he gets to the point within like three pages and then he just expounds on it he's a really great writer he's this old white dude teaches at Columbia seminary or something like that now maybe he's retired but yeah great book to read it's theology and philosophy so not for everybody but take a look he describes that the prophetic task is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. That's the prophetic imagination. He says it does this in two ways. First, criticizing dominant consciousness, right? so calling out the fools, saying like, this is foolishness, this will not stand, man. And then the other is an energizing alternative consciousness. They come together. Encouraging resistance is, is energizing right? Proclaiming God's wisdom, sharing God's wisdom in the world, in action and in word. That's, that's energizing. Criticizing and energizing. Prophetic imagination. And the imag- imagination doesn't just hypothesize or dream for Brueggemann, but it actively engages the muck of the world. Moses is like the big example that he gives, which is just dope. Uh, criticizing and energizing, seeing the horizon of what's possible as God sees it. Uh, opening up possibilities at the levels of the spirit's activity in the world. That's the prophetic imagination. So this goes hand in hand with attention. And I think a lot of us have a lot of experience with attention uh, and work to to sort of discipline our intention. We're not just working at the ideal fantasy lands of, of, of social justice like on Twitter or in the cloud, but real places, real times, real situations, our neighborhoods, places that we live and walk. I walk my dog around my street every day. And it's a task to not just pull out my phone and look at my phone, but to look around and like attend my neighborhood, attend to what's going on. It's hard, because I'd rather just be addressed by this. One of the special things about a phone is that it is addressing you alone. And that's pretty rare in the world. There aren't many places, like especially right now, I'm not directly addressing any of you. All of you are directly focusing on me, which is giving me something of the same experience of my phone. Just that everything on it is tailored for me. And if I don't like it, I can just swipe it away (laughs) and go to something else. That's addictive, right? But that's not what attention in the real world looks like. And I I guess as as soon as we have kids, we'll know instantly that we are not the center of the world. Um, So yeah, there's uh, just to get nerdy for you real quick, we have some time. There's this whole growing school of thought right now called embodied cognition or externalism. Maybe some of you have done some work in this. I'm like just experimenting and, and learning about it this semester. It's wild, man. They, uh, they're saying this is like basically a Newtonian or a Darwinian or maybe even a Copernican turn in like the field of psychology. But the, the understanding of awareness and of, of the mind is that it's intimately connected to the body and to the body's embeddedness in its situation. That you, you, you don't get a mind without a body. And your body isn't floating. Your body's somewhere, right? You're embodied and you're embedded is basically the big insight of embodied cognition. And this is really revolutionizing a lot of how psychology understands itself and it's helpful for us. There's this writer called J.J. Gibson. Uh, Gibsonian psychology is this this field. This is really nerdy. But he writes about the ecological approach to perception and awareness. Um, He says that your perception isn't static. The, The conventional way of understanding how we perceive, how the mind works is like cameras taking pictures and then those get interpreted by the brain and then they tell our body what to do. He says, no, that's not how it works. Your eyes are in a skull, on a neck, on shoulders, right, on a torso and on legs that move around. The act of perception is dynamic. It's as you move around that you understand that, oh, this is an edge of this desk because I can see it moving in a different way than what's behind it. That takes movement to understand. That's what's happening when kids are learning how to walk, how to walk, how to, how to distinguish depth all of that comes with movement. It doesn't come just from looking at pictures. The point is that information is gathered by moving, not by looking alone or by listening, but by comparing all the differences in how all this information arrives to us and seeing what stays the same and what changes. And it's that, that's, that's a, a much broader understanding of what it means to gather knowledge about the world. He calls it, and this is like the nerdiest thing that he's ever written, he calls it we don't, we don't perceive, we extract invariance from the stimulus flux. <laughs> right? Like, he's, he's right. He's not wrong. That's just, like, the nerdiest thing you could possibly say. But chew on that if you're a nerd like me and you want to go into this. Um, so, to draw this, like, into what it means that we're, we're, we're waiting on God to give us a mind, when we move with the Spirit, that's what's happening. Does that make sense? That we don't just pick up what the Spirit is giving us once in a moment, sitting in a chair on Sunday, and then let that be our information. No, all of our movement is with the Spirit. And the Spirit is revealing things to us should we attend, right? Should we let that gift be given, that's, the, that's the, how these things start to overlap. And I'm, I'm just really excited about where embodied cognition is going. And I want more theology to deal with it. Because this is what it's like to love God, right? It's a movement thing. It's dynamic. We see it in ourselves as we move about the world. And we see it in each other, right? We see each other move around and what happens and how God moves with us. And that informs us. That, that, lets, that, that reveals to us the kind of God that it is that loves us. Okay. So things to do. A uh, few more things. One, I'd say... Uh, I've been, as I was thinking about this, mostly I I struggle less with like the feeling of being a fool, as much as a fool as I am. I I struggle with being distracted a lot of the time. Like that's why I bring up the idea of attention. When it comes to the mind of Christ, like I struggle with being distracted. Uh, It's been really helpful for me that the phones now have screen time. Have you used that app on your phone? It limits your access to apps. Because I don't got any self-control with this, right? They're too addictive. I've tried turning them to black and white, but I know how to do it. So I just switch it back. You know? Like I can't I can't I'm like a junkie. And then with with what Hannah's been doing is she's been uh, she has the password to screen time now. So <laughs> I can't unlock the apps. <laughs> when my 30 minutes of Instagram are done, I are done. So if you're DMing me, it's like, yeah, Wes is, uh, it's, it's four in the afternoon. Wes is done. Yeah, he uses 30 minutes. Like, that, that's been very helpful for me because I've needed some help to let my attention get formed in a different way because I'm just susceptible to this. Maybe there are other things for you, right? Just write a list out. What are the things that you tend to be, that you tend to attend, that you give your attention to, just do a survey. Just think about it. That's part of what Lent is, right? When we do it for our bodies, we recognize hunger. right? We recognize food. And we cut out some parts of food. Maybe you need to do this with your attention, too, with where your mind is going. Maybe imagination as well. For me, a lot of my imagination is given to Netflix. Uh, It's given to Netflix, and it's given to academics. Uh, It's not really given to my relationships, right? Or... My neighborhood it's given to things that affect me and me alone in ways that I want and it's good to open that up and let God give a different imagination a different horizon a prophetic one uh, there are a lot of activities that can help with this cooking dancing praying art design music play exercise like all these different ways you can be active in the world those are a different fidelity of attention than what comes to you through a screen. It's high fidelity, right? You can't represent all the density of information that you experience in the world through a little glowing rectangle. Do things out in the world. That, that'll help. I've been reading this book called The World Beyond Your Head by Matthew Crawford. I didn't bring that one, but I, I could have. I That's a good one. But he's very white and he's very male, you know, so like, you don't need to read him. It's okay. Uh, he, described, he describes the, the value and joy of skilled action in the world. Uh, he's a motorcycle repairman, so... For him, the action of working on motorcycles really helps. He likes doing that. But I, I really like talking to a lot of you because you're artists or architects. Like Jeremy, when I talk to Jeremy about what he sees in the world, it's very different than how I see in the world. Like Jeremy can like talk your ear off about like the borders at the bottom of walls. What are those called? Footboards? Baseboard. Baseboards. <laughs> Jeremy has a lot to say about baseboards, and it's really excellent, right? I've never given my attention to baseboards the way Jeremy does. That helps me, right? That helps me to show up in the world in a different way. Jess Schaffner and Josh run the, the, Josh Mintz run the, the Heartland Garden. They're gonna do Sunday morning volunteering there. If you'd like to get your hands dirty and work in the garden, do that. That's uh, a really great way to get involved. Jordan is doing Centering Prayer, Saturday mornings throughout Lent. If you wanna learn what it's like to let prayer be the synthesis of attention and imagination, that's a really good way to do that. I've been doing morning prayer at the simple way, at 8 a.m. on, on weekdays, it's early, but it helps me, it, it gets me out of bed. Uh, jigs me into that. that. That can help too. There are a lot of things going on, right? Our church is pretty good at this. I'm, I'm just trying to like stoke some of the heat on that and keep it going. That's what I have to say. I'm going to pray and then we can do some talk back. Holy Spirit, be with us. The world is just hungry for our attention. It's just trying to claim us. Would you, would you reveal to us what you're doing in us, in those around us, in the world, in the earth, We want to move with you, see as you see, feel as you feel. Spirit, give us the mind of Christ. Let us know as Jesus knows. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.